literally I could not even put half my foot in. And we had arguments that they were fine. And there was like, fine for whom? Because it's like, it actually has to be able to fit on my foot. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. So today is the penultimate episode of the series, episode 29. I have some good news about what's coming next, which I will be saying more about in the next episode. In the meantime, let me quickly address a question that I received online. Um, It was about the risks of a second wave of the coronavirus here in China. The short answer is that we simply don't know right now. Uh, Now being April the 7th, 2020, I would hate to say that the risks are low and then for things to change. But here is what they're doing about it in Shanghai, at least. At the airport, they're testing every passenger who arrives on international flights, and they monitor their quarantine with little sensors that they put on your doors. These sensors go off if you open your door more than twice a day for two minutes each time, allowing you to do things like take deliveries or throw out the rubbish. And for the rest of us who have been here the whole time, if you leave Shanghai, even just to neighboring provinces, When you come back, you need to go through the 14 days of quarantine again. So those are the rules that are giving us a little bit of comfort that there won't be a second wave. Who knows how long these rules will last? That's the big question for me right now, because I'm guessing that if other countries don't put similar things into place, then they could be around for a long time. My guest today is actually a friend of mine. It's Sanford Brown, who at the time of recording was the VP of Research and Innovation at L'Oreal China. He has since been promoted to the SVP position, covering all of Asia Pacific, and has relocated to Tokyo, so I was lucky to grab him before he left. I'm also very grateful because as a microbiologist, Sanford represents the one scientist that I managed to squeeze into season one of the series, and he talks in a way that makes something quite complicated incredibly easy for the likes of you and I to digest. Thank you so much for coming in today, Sanford. Thanks. So I ask everyone here to bring in an object that in some way represents what they're doing here in China. So what have you brought today? So it's artificial skin. And what we've done is taken a cell of Chinese skin and then grown skin, much like you've heard for uh, grafting when people have burns. It's the same technology that we're using to really recreate a three-dimensional skin. What's different about this is we have to make sure that every single one is exactly the same. And the purpose of this, so this is a 10-year effort, and it's building off of work that we've done uh, in the past in France. And what we use it first and foremost is for safety. As uh, L'Oreal was founded by a chemist over 100 years ago, uh, creating the first uh, hair color that was safe. And so safety has been a non-negotiable for the company ever since. So if we take the raw materials in the products that we're using and we test them here on this artificial skin to ensure that there's no adverse reactions. That's first and foremost. And now we've taken it one step further with the Chinese skin and been able to also test it for efficacy. So for example, uh, we were able to see how whitening products work in terms of melanocytes, uh, same thing in terms of aging. So we use that also for performance. So safety and efficacy uh, and to avoid animal testing. So we haven't done any animal testing in the company for, uh, for 30 years. So we've commercialized this EpiSkin and now we uh, make it available to uh, uh, research uh, universities, government agents that we've actually helped uh, train to be able to run this type of testing and even offer it to our competition. 
Wow, that's fascinating. I will definitely post a photo of that artificial skin uh, on social media. It probably is not what people expect to see, actually. It's, it's quite interesting, these 12 wells. <laughs> and what else do you do in the lab? In China, we really cover from fundamental upstream research, trying to create new molecules or partnering with other startups, all the way through down to creating the finished products for skin, for makeup, and for hair to really meet the needs of the Chinese consumer. At what stage in the process then do you use the end user, the consumer? Uh, so we would begin very early on in understanding the uh, raw material, for example, that we may be looking at and seeing how it performs at a molecular level. And we have special uh, microscopes that actually give us uh, almost an X-ray effect that we can see how it penetrates in three dimensions uh, for performance. And then when we have this type of level of performance, we then start bringing in with consumers. So we can bring uh, 100 to 200 consumers a day into our facility, and we help co-create the innovations with them. What's really key to success is rapid iteration. So test, fail, learn, test, fail, learn, being able to do that multiple times and really doing that holistically. So you bring in all aspects of the product, the performance characteristics, the texture, the fragrance, the packaging, much more holistically, and that allows us to move much faster into the marketplace. So which is the actual starting point? Is the starting point the technology that is available to you, or is the starting point what you hear the consumer needs? Really, it's the intersection of the two. It can happen both ways, what uh, we call a technical push or a consumer pull. But usually uh, a real innovation or invention happens at the intersection between what is more cutting edge of what's technically possible and where consumers' aspirations, where they want to go, uh, meet. And that's why we have upstream uh, scientists and experts that really are the best in their field. And we also have consumer scientists who work in terms of both evaluation and really understanding the trends of what's coming next. I like that phrase, consumer pull and technical push. There must be sometimes a gap between the two. Like, uh, have, have you had any examples where you've been trying to push something technologically, but the consumers just did not want it? Uh, yes, that, no, that, that uh, definitely happens. And then uh, that's why it's really important to understand what is it that the consumer wants and what is it that they're really evaluating for. You might uh, have uh, technology that can work, but how you apply it on the face doesn't uh, feel like it's penetrating, doesn't give a nice uh, glow to the skin, then it just doesn't work. So we have to stop there and uh, because the consumers in the end are very smart. And if you just say something and the product doesn't deliver it, it's not going to work, particularly today's world where you have so much of on e-commerce and reviews and key opinion leaders. It's really critical that we get that right. Well, you mentioned the consumer there. So let's talk about the consumer specifically here in China. Have you noticed anything unique about this market? Uh, most definitely. So I think it's really been uh, transformative, and it continues to transform at, uh, at an amazing rate. Uh, so if I just go back, uh, say, uh, five years ago, uh, at that point in skincare, most of the skincare products were really very much a Western product with a little bit of adaptation. And so they believe that those Western products were good quality. Maybe they didn't work exactly the way I wanted them, but they were still good quality. Makeup was not used much. Hair color was just covering gray, mostly men. There wasn't too much of this. Today, a completely different scenario. 
the Chinese consumer for skin is super demanding. So in the context, you might look uh, as a Caucasian at uh, Chinese and Asian skin for aging and say, ah, you know, they don't seem to age, you know, uh, at the same uh, pace. Right, right. It is very different. It's true. Uh, they don't have the deep set wrinkles that tend to happen in terms of Caucasians. But at the same time, what we find is the consumer, the Chinese consumer, she's super sensitive. She really looks around her eyes, around the forehead, around the mouth, and those little fine lines she notices and she's very, very conscious of. And so this makes her super demanding. Uh, same with uh, hair color because it's completely different when you're doing it on dark hair. It's much harder. And Chinese hair is actually the most susceptible to damage. It has the highest cuticle angle. So cuticle is where the hairs go, uh, sort of scales that go one on top of the other. It's naturally at a higher angle, which means uh, damage can happen very easily. So we have to make sure not only do you have really the strong color effect, but at the same time have no damage at all to the hair. So that caring aspect and performance are trade-offs. So these things are always... Uh, changing and evolving, and this is how we've created new products, uh, and these new products have started to go into the West as well. They can translate from China successfully into the world, which was not the case at all five years ago. You know, as we're talking, it's reminding me of an interview I did with Maple Zwar, and she grew up in um, Inner Mongolia. And I do remember distinctly, she said, the first time she saw anyone with makeup was actually when um, she saw a prostitute with red lipstick. I wonder, like, what has the history been in the last generation about um, skin care and makeup? I have a similar experience from uh, when I was traveling back as a student around China in 1988, uh, that the first time I saw anyone with uh, lipstick was actually in a Nanjing train station, and uh, they were prostitutes, and there were people who were asking me to pay money to sit there, uh, otherwise I would be robbed. So it was the only experience like that, so I can relate. But today, it's completely different. It's very traditional in the world that you would see, if you're a young girl, you'd see your mother or your older sister putting on makeup, and you'd try that as a kid, and so then you get a preteen, you start to do that. This generation never had that. Their mother didn't really, except for uh, Chinese New Year or uh, wedding, would not really wear makeup on a regular basis. So she's had to learn all of these things herself. And what we find is actually she's super demanding. And as a single child with two working parents and sometimes even force as a grandparents, they have cash. So they go in, they will buy their first lipstick, would often be a luxury lipstick, and then it makes them set a very high standard from the beginning of what they expect in terms of performance, in terms of perceived value. And we've been saying China um, sometimes in the same breath as Asia, but you know, what, what are the differences between, let's say, the Chinese consumer and the other consumers here in North Asia, let's say the Koreans, the Japanese? So there are some similarities and there are some differences. So for example, even things like whitening. So Japanese tend to want more of a almost porcelain white, where Chinese want to have more of a rosy glow. Uh, Chinese are also much more pragmatic. Uh, Japanese tend to have, depending on which segment, if you're very luxury or hyper-luxury, you will have a very set routine with products only in there. Chinese will look at what is the best product? And I will mix a luxury product with a mass product because I want to pick what is the, the best value and best value I'm willing to spend if it really delivers it. If it doesn't, then, then I won't. So that's also for us to make sure that we really have what we call hero products, that consumers can really see a difference in these and they really make a, a, a big performance. 
What is coming down the pipeline? So if you can talk in general terms about sort of the future of what we're seeing in skincare, hair care, and uh, makeup, what trends do you see coming up? So I think there's a convergence of a number of different uh, technologies and environmental factors that are going to come to play, and particularly in Asia. You have aspects like uh, more urbanization. So we've already seen this happen, huge shifts in terms of China, uh, now 55 or more percent of the population living in urban centers. But that puts pressure on how people live. You see more in terms of tensions with uh, pollution and water scarcity. So that all is going to affect people's daily life and being able to actually, what are the products that they want to do? How do they feel more tired for the skin? How UV rays uh, affect skin? And actually, there's a longer wavelength UVA, which actually does the damage. And even on cloudy days, that can penetrate. We found that plus pollution actually has a negative synergistic effect on skin health. So you're going to have that urbanization. You're going to have smart materials, materials that will actually be able to go and attack a specific gene or part of the skin. Uh, So it's really quite exciting uh, in terms of uh, what will happen. And I think what's uh, most definitely going to happen is China is going to play an instrumental role in, in that future. All right. Well, now I get it. Now I I can see why you're so busy. (laughs) The positive uh, part about that is there's job security. (laughs) So uh, it's not something that you reach an end point, Mm. which makes it exciting. Fascinating. Well, thank you. We're going to move on now to part two. So question one, do you have any favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Chen li zhe xing, shi yu zhu cha which uh, roughly translates into a journey of a thousand miles begins with a first step. And uh, that to me is a a very inspiring way uh, to really think about when you want to do something and you're not exactly sure how to do it, begin and just that first step will have uh, a real big impact. And so uh, that's sort of how I, it's one of uh, the aspects of how I live my life and it's also uh, uh, um, how we've developed the uh, RNI Center here in China. Amen. What is your favorite destination within China? That's a very hard question. You know, I'm Canadian, and you know, China's the same, almost same size as Canada. It's a huge country. I, I've been to a lot of places, but still only just a few. One, I only went in 1988, so it may be completely different now. Um, and the context was, you know, everything was just. Uh, back then, an assault on my senses. It was not anything that I said before, uh, so crowded. It was bicycles that you went everywhere. The buses uh, had no air conditioning. It was during the summer. And then I went to a city called Chufu, and that was a birthplace of Confucius. And they had um, like a park with, I guess it's also a graveyard and a restaurant. And what struck me there, and again, may not be anything like it today, it was just so quiet. So it was just, it was the contrast versus everything else, which is also, again, one of the themes that I feel all the time in China is you see these big contrasts, and that really stood out. And the the second one was uh, more recently, went uh, with my wife and a bunch of friends on a motorcycle trip. We were in a sidecar, and we went to uh, Mount Everest Base Camp. So the on the China side, on the north face, and we went up, uh, right up to the base camp. And we wake up first thing in the morning, and the clouds part, and you see the top of Everest with the sun coming through. Uh, It was really uh, quite spectacular. Wow. 
And you mentioned your wife, so I should probably say right now that it's thanks to your wife that I know you. So a big shout out to Lisa, uh, an amazing photographer here in Shanghai. Next question. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? What I uh, miss the most is just the pace of change. Uh, there's a addictive energy that you get from things continuously changing. So you might see little things that change elsewhere, but nowhere else where you have speed and scale that combine well. So that is uh, definitely going to miss. Uh, what I won't miss is the pollution aspect. Uh, I know the government is making a huge effort on this part. Uh, I really think it's uh, it's all of our responsibility to do that. Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? Oh well, I would say if ever I'm at a point where it doesn't surprise me, then I'd be shocked. Uh, I think uh, every time uh, you see things again, it relates to the pace of change and how things change so fast, how people. Ad- Adopt to the change. Just um, you always see these changes. I think for me, this is every time uh, when you look on the streets, I'm surprised by something.、Uh, where is your favorite place to go out to to eat, to drink, or just to hang out?、Uh, so there's some downsides to、uh, to the pace of change that happens. So I would say a lot of the favorite places that I had no longer exist. My favorite Baozi shop, my favorite Shalongbao shop.、Uh, Uh, some older streets that I would love to walk in that really felt like you're in older China. Unfortunately, those don't really exist anymore in Shanghai.、Um, I used to do when people came in、uh, Shanghai for the first time. I used to take my sidecar and、uh, go out to、uh, the countryside where you see farmers and everything, and then take them down to the Bund. And you saw that all within one day, and so it was complete contrast、uh, of that. So that's a that's a little bit there. So there, but on the flip side, you always have new,、uh, fantastic places. The、uh, probably the、um, the new restaurant that I like is a、uh, Haya,、uh, in the Edition Hotel, because、uh, uh, what I like about it is、so、food's very good there, the quality's there, but the view. So they have a bar upstairs, and you have a rooftop, and of course Shanghai has lots of rooftop bars. But what was interesting, I like this one. It's a different view, at least what I had seen before, because you're further back. And you have a different perspective on the city that I had never seen before, even though I've seen it、uh, a million times. And、uh, honestly, I think、uh, Shanghai is the most beautiful city at night、uh, in the world. What is the best or worst purchase that you've made in China? Probably worst purchase I made is you know because China you can get some custom-made things right,、uh, relatively inexpensive, and I got a pair of custom-made shoes. And it was like a cartoon. They were more than four or five sizes too small. I, there was literally I could not even put half my foot in. And we had arguments that they made them, and I had to pay for them, and they were fine. And it was like fine for whom? Because it's like it actually has to be able to fit on my foot. <laughs> Next question:、uh, What is your favorite WeChat sticker?、Um, So for WeChat stickers, I th- for me, probably like many people, you always look what's the most current one. Oh, I got to have that one. That's really good. But I find with particularly in their more cartoonish ones, they're great, but they're only great for a few weeks. And then there's there's one that、uh, I really like. It's a dog, a pug, and just walking and then look straight in the camera. And it's more of that surprise, like you're really, huh? What's happening? Which is more of、uh, your sort of your daily life in Shanghai. So that's why why it relates. <laughs> What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? Okay, so、um, if I had any ability to sing, <laughs> I would not be、uh, working in research and innovation. I would be a lounge singer because that is my, my that is my desire in life. 
But uh, sometimes you're given gifts, and uh, that is not a gift at all that I have in any way, shape, or form. That said, if I if there was one song, older one, uh, Xiaopingua. Oh. Yes. Small apple. It's a few years old. It's a few years old. It was a dance uh, song uh, here. And it's easy. Like, can I learn that one? Yes. And well, you have to see the video as well. And finally, what other China-related media or just general sources of information do you rely on? I'm a huge fan for years of WeChat. So uh, as a one-stop shop, it's fantastic to be able to to go there. Uh, Then um, uh, more for work-related use, I guess now it's called TikTok. that's really uh, interesting media. We see it, for example, in uh, our business in makeup. These girls didn't know how to use makeup. They couldn't go to their mother. Now the amount of tutorials to be able to do that, to see how to apply eyeshadow, things like this is uh, really quite different. And then for English language, uh, I guess it's called Shine now, Shanghai Daily. Great. I must say, you've put it in my head now, the piece you said about how women here in China are more sensitive to the very fine lines. I feel like now I'm going to be looking really closely at Chinese women. (laughs) Oh, dear. So if you see me in public coming very close to a Chinese woman's face, this is all Sanford's fault. You can provide us new insights. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, Well, listen, before you leave, the last thing I ask all my guests is for the next season, of Mosaic of China. I would like to interview someone who you recommend. So out of everyone you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview next? Ah, so I have uh, uh, a fascinating person, a colleague of mine, uh, Stefan Wilmet. Uh, he's been in uh, China for a very long time. And his current role is super interesting because he is our chief consumer officer in uh, L'Oreal, China. So he is the one uh, with his uh, fingers on the pulse of what's really happening with the Chinese consumer, what are the shifts that are happening with that. And his long history here gives him the right perspective to be able to offer that. So really a fascinating person. Uh, I think you'll enjoy talking with him. Great. I can't wait. Thank you so much again, Sanford. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, here's at least one positive story to come out of the virus outbreak. I have not, in fact, been pressing up against Chinese women's faces. So you see, every cloud has a silver restraining order. Thanks again to Sanford for the chat. I didn't plan on talking about prostitutes to a microbiologist, but that fascinating connection was with Maple Zuo, the comedian from episode two. So please do check that out. Sanford also mentioned TikTok just there. That also came up in episode 21 with the broadcaster Yang Yi. And I've posted a lot of images on social media that you can see on Instagram and Facebook. Search under Mosaic of China there, or you can join the community on WeChat. Just add me on Oscar10877 and I'll add you to the group. I was just taking a look at this actually, and last week I added the 200th new person who came into the community this way. So thanks to all of you there. Many people who are there came through my own personal networks, so I'm really grateful to those people who I didn't know before. This week's images include Sanford with his object, the set of wells of artificial skin. There is his sticker, the surprised pug. There's some photos at Mount Everest Base Camp with his wife Lisa, and a whole bunch of other goodies. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, artwork by Danny Newell, and extra support from Milo de Prieto and Alston Gong. Join us next week for the last episode of the series. <laughs> <laughs>